Amen and good morning. Good to see you all. Uh, we're going to be in Amos chapter 6. Find your way there. I promise it won't hurt too bad today. Uh, but uh, we're doing the Minor Prophets right now. And remember, we're taking no more than three weeks on each of them. So we're in our second week uh, out of the book of Amos. Next week, the Right Reverend Susie Bates is going to be up here closing out Amos. And I, yeah, I'm excited too. Um, um, I always love it when she leads us, but also after six weeks, even I am sick of my own voice. So next week, someone else. Uh, that'll be great. Let me ask you a question as we get into this. What do you think makes Christianity grow and become healthy? Don't answer out loud, just rhetorically. I don't know if you've thought about this before, but what is the environment in which our faith begins growing and becomes a healthy version of itself. Now, by growing, I mean like numerically, more people are becoming Christians. And by healthy, I guess I just mean this, that we uh, are like loving people and uh, we're loving Jesus in the way that the Bible talks about. So that's what I mean, growing and becoming healthy. What is the situation or the environmental factors that lead Christianity to grow and become healthy? There is a fabulous book called The Triumph of Christianity by a historian named Rodney Stark. Uh, and he writes in The Triumph of Christianity basically this story of how Christianity went from probably less than 200 people in Jerusalem to the largest and fastest growing religion on the planet. Um, and it is a uh, just mind-blowing story, and he writes from a historical perspective, and there are so many things in this story that just are like inaccuracies that I believe that he just shatters or half-truths that I bought into that he's like, that's not the way it was at all. Even the premise of the book is a little bit shattering in, in its assumption. It shatters conventional wisdom. For hundreds of years, academic secularists, really since the Enlightenment, have said that the advent of science in the modern world will end our need for superstitious religion and things of faith. Not only has that not happened, but the opposite has happened. The world has become, the modern world is more religious now than it ever has been. 76% of people on this planet say that religion is an important part of their daily lives. Not just like weekly, but like daily lives. Of that, uh, or of the entire population, 40% of the people on earth today are Christians. And that number is growing rapidly, more rapidly than any other religious group and more rapidly than the group of non-religious people on the planet. Um, now, we've talked in here about statistics before. A few weeks ago, I talked about how church attendance is declining, um, and it is, but the Christian faith is doing quite well, and I think for those of us who lead churches, that fact should make us sit down, shut up, and ask some hard questions instead of just defending the way we've always done things. That's a sermon for another day. Did I say that too strongly? <laughs> Thank you my sister. Uh, so Rodney Stark, he writes the comprehensive story of how this has happened, how has Christianity become the biggest religion on the planet, uh, and he spends a lot of time on this question of what environments within a country make Christianity grow rapidly and become this healthier version of himself. And he comes to four conclusions uh, that he summarizes, and he says, uh, these are the four things that are usually true when Christianity starts growing very quickly and becoming very healthy. Two of these you might expect, two of them you might not. The two that 
things you might expect. One is the message. He says that what part of the uniqueness of Christianity is in the gospel message. It's very simple to understand. It can be understand, understood no matter what, where you are on the uh, educational spectrum. It's easy to internalize. It is flexible. It fits into most cultures. It doesn't demand only one culture, but it fits into most cultures and transcends all cultures. And so the message is a central part of the spread of Christianity. A second thing that is central to the spread of Christianity is the scriptures. This is something unique. The idea that every single person has the same revelation from God, and you don't need me to tell you what it says. You could read for yourself in your own language and understand what the scriptures say and make sense of that. It is not dependent on a person, and that is central to the growth and also the health of Christianity. Those are the two factors you might expect. And then he mentions two things that you might not expect, or at least I did not expect. Maybe you're smarter than me, but these are usually true when Christianity is growing. First, pluralism, meaning the idea that there are a lot of religions available to people. Like when there's religious competition, he looks at the statistics and he says Christianity always does very well in an environment with a lot of religious competition. Isn't that interesting? The second thing he mentions is persecution. Statistically, when people try to stop Christianity, it actually has the opposite effect. It grows quickly and it becomes much more healthy. So a context where those two factors exist, where there's religious pluralism or there's persecution of some kind, apparently the mercy and the devotion of Christians becomes very attractive to other people. And so what helps this movement that we are in grow is when the gospel message is clear, the scriptures are available to everyone, when multiple religions are welcome to the table and there's competition there, and or there's open antagonism to Christianity. Historically, we do great in environments like that. Now, he also points this out. The statistics would suggest overwhelmingly that the most challenging environment for our faith, for Christianity, when it comes to growth and thriving, is when Christianity achieves a monopoly in a culture. Meaning like if it becomes the state religion or if it gains so much power in a culture that it starts dictating where that culture is going. Statistically, the next thing that happens one generation later is that it starts to decline and it becomes incredibly unhealthy. Isn't that interesting? I don't know if you've heard these messages. I've heard them. I have felt them sometimes. Oh, man, I wish we had more power in this country. I wish we Christians called the shots. The world's always challenging us. I wish that someone would protect us, protect our rights. Yet the evidence would overwhelmingly suggest that one of the best possible things that could happen to our little movement of God's people in terms of the spread of the gospel and in terms of our health as the church is that we never get too much control and that we stay a little bit uncomfortable. God forbid that the state starts protecting us and advocating for us and defending us the way the state has done for 1,500 years in Europe because that would be the death of the American church much like it was there. Fascinated by that. This is the conclusion. If you look at the statistics, it is overwhelmingly true that whenever there is competition and struggle, Christianity does great 
When there is comfort and power, we flounder and become anemic and become unhealthy. We should write that down. Like, that's an important truth. That teaches us a valuable lesson. It is a lesson that Amos is going to hammer home today. I would restate it in this way. If you want a meaningless faith, if you want a meaningless faith that changes nothing in your life, a meaningless faith that changes nothing in our world, then comfort is the place to start. Amos chapter 6, verse 1. Woe to you who are complacent in Zion. To you who feel secure on Mount Samaria, you notable men of the foremost nation to whom the people of Israel come. Pause right there. So remember, Amos, he's a shepherd from the southern kingdom. God sends him to the northern kingdom of Israel, and he's confronting them about the ways that they've tolerated injustice. They've given up on the dream of God, of a kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, we talked about this last week. The, the people are very religious, actually. Like, they're doing all the stuff, but God is so offended by the way they worship because they're not really aligned with his values. So while they do the stuff and they show up to church, they're not really pursuing the dream of God. And in chapter 6, Amos starts calling out the people in charge who apparently are very comfortable with where they're sitting. And it's clear that their comfort has been incredibly toxic to their spiritual health. Comfortable people don't easily change. They found the path of least resistance, and they're walking that path. And so Amos, he calls them complacent. He calls them secure, notable men. So these are the men in charge. They, they, with their authority, they've made a pretty good life for themselves, and they don't really care about what's happening out there. Amos continues to describe their situation. Look at verse 4. You lie on beds adorned with ivory and lounge on your couches. You dine on choice lambs and fattened calves. You strum away on your harps like David and improve on musical, or I'm sorry, improvise on musical instruments. You drink wine by the bowlful and use the finest lotions, but you do not grieve over the ruin of Joseph. So Amos is saying to them, listen, you're living a pretty good life, like you're secure here, and you do not care about who has been left out, about who doesn't have a seat at the table. Now, in a second, we're going to hear one of these men respond to Amos, but out of curiosity, how do you think they responded to this? Not well. Not, not well at all. I suspect they started feeling defensive. I suspect they did what we all do when we hear a little bit of criticism. We're like, well, that's not how it is. This is what I do, and this is all the stuff that I've been doing. But notice, Amos is not actually talking about what they do. He is talking about what is happening while they're in charge. He is talking about something called the ruin of Joseph. That's a reference to the entire nation of Israel and specifically the way some, not all, but some were struggling within it. And he's basically saying, you are so focused on your own life. You're so focused on the, these defenses in your head. That you're so connected to yourself. When one of God's children that has nothing to do with you, but you've been entrusted with them, is struggling and suffering and experiencing injustice, you feel nothing. You're not even sad about it. That's how focused you are on your own thing. So God is going to talk to him. Here's what God says, verse 8. The sovereign Lord has sworn by himself. The Lord God Almighty declares, I abhor 
the pride of Jacob and detest his fortresses. I will deliver up the city and everything in it. So God says, I hate this so much, I'm just going to tear it down. That's what he's going to do. Now, uh, I, you will note that is stated in the most negative of terms. Uh, if you have not gathered this, that's kind of Amos's thing. <laughs> he says it like in the most offensive way possible sometimes. Uh, but we could spin that just a little bit. We could state this a little bit more positively because I think this is the heart behind it. What God is saying to his people is, listen, the dream that I have for you, it is so beautiful. It is, so, like, it is this precious dream full of justice and mercy for all. And I want that so much for you people. And I, I think you want it for yourself. I am not going to give up that dream just because you've settled. Just because you've settled for comfort over the glorious dream of my kingdom doesn't mean that I, your God, am going to also give up on that because of your comfort. That's really what he's saying to them. He said, listen, just because I can't get you out of your bed, I guess I'm going to have to just burn it down, you know? So you'll have to get up. I will not let your pursuit of a comfortable life talk me out of this beautiful dream I have for my people. And I think that's the crux of what Amos is saying here, is the problem with comfort is it makes us give up on the dream of God. And so Amos is trying to get them to go back to, hey, would you look at God's king? Would you look at how great this is? That's how we measure ourselves here. Not by, am I comfortable, but by this incredible dream. And that's actually where he goes in chapter 7. Skip down to verse 7 of chapter 7. He, he writes this. This is what he showed me. The Lord was standing by a wall. They had been built true to plumb with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord asked me, what do you see, Amos? A plumb line, I replied. Then the Lord said, look, I am setting a plumb line among my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. The high places of Isaac will be destroyed and the sanctuaries of Israel will be ruined. With my sword, I will rise against the house of Jeroboam. Jeroboam was the king of Israel at the time. So that plumb line is a measurement tool that basically you use to make sure the wall is standing straight, right? And God says, I'm going to measure you all. And what is he measuring them against? It is the picture that he gave them hundreds of years before over in Exodus 19 and 20 where God says, listen, you could be my people like no one else on earth. The whole earth belongs to me, but I choose you people. And I could be your God, and we could together build this thing that accounts for everyone, and it, where there's love, and there's mercy, and there's justice for all. That's the picture that I'm going to measure you against. That's always been the measurement for God's people. And then he says, hey, with, this, with my sword, I'll rise up against the house of Jeroboam. The sword that he's talking about is the kingdom or the empire of Assyria. Amos is saying God is going to use the sword of Assyria to take away the comfort, and then he names the king who is sitting at the throne. And maybe that's the point. Uh, like after seven chapters of this, Amos just maybe went too far because it gets a pretty strong reaction after that comment. Look at verse 10. Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent a message to Jeroboam, king of Israel. Amos is raising a conspiracy against you in the very heart of Israel. The land cannot bear all his words, for this is what Amos is saying. Jeroboam will die by the sword. Israel will surely go into exile away from their native land. Then Amaziah turned to Amos and said, Get out, you seer. Go back to the land of Judah. Earn your bread there. 
do your prophesying there. Don't prophesy anymore at Bethel because this is the king's sanctuary and the temple of the kingdom. So for context, Amaziah is the high priest at the Bethel sanctuary where the Israelites in the north would worship. So uh, think of it this way. Uh, Amaziah is a pastor of a big church, pastor of a mega church. He personally knows the guy in charge. He knows the king. Like they have lunch together. They're friends. They hang out. They talk about stuff. Um, And so he goes to the king and he says, this guy, Amos, this guy has to go. We need to kick him out of our country because if he keeps talking like this, things are going to get very uncomfortable for us. We're in charge. We have to lead these people and he's making it incredibly hard. Why won't he just listen to us? And then he turns to Amos and he says, just go home. You're not even from here. And I love Amos's response because uh, you could read it later. But basically, he says, hey, man, I'm not even a prophet. Like, I'm just some dude. God gave me this message. So don't get mad at me. This is the message of God. See, Amaziah thought the messenger was the problem. That's all he could see is the messenger. The messenger is just serving the one who sent the message. And Amaziah never stops to consider the message behind this. Um, another sidebar here, this is not the point of the sermon, but I think if you're in a leadership context of any sort, like we as leaders need to be aware of the mistake that Amaziah is making here. Because it is very easy for us to make this. As leaders, we, like, we wind up working against the movement of God when sometimes God bypasses us and sends someone else with the message, right? As a leader, it's really easy to assume, well, if God wants to do something in the nation, he'll tell me. And when he doesn't tell me, he tells somebody else, and then I'm like, oh, I, don't know. I don't know if I like how you said it. And then we wind up working against God just because we didn't like the messenger. That is what is happening here, right? And if you're a leader, that is something you have to guard against because we are all capable of that, dismissing the message of God because we don't like the way he said it to us. That's what Amaziah does. Okay, let's pause there. That, that's probably enough bad news for a while. Susie's going to come back next week. She, just all good news, all week. That's all. There's a lot to digest here. I think the, the obvious thing in this is that God is saying that the comfortable and the prideful are held uniquely accountable for injustice. That's what he's saying here. If you're comfortable, if you're prideful, then you're uniquely to blame for this. And I think what Amos is teaching us is just that our comfort, it, it actually works against our spiritual health. There's an inverse correlation. As comfort goes up, spiritual health declines. And I think the reason is because human comfort actually makes it harder to hear from God. That's why Israel's not doing well. It's because the people at the top, they're comfortable. And that's that's probably why what Rodney Stark discovered as he looked at the history is this is the reason why Christianity always does poorly whenever we have too much control. It's because in our comfort... It's easy to dismiss the voice of God, so we stop listening. Let me just apply this uh, in one way, and then I'll give you an example, and then we'll wrap up. Here's maybe the one application that all of us need to just realize. We should be cautious about comfort. We should be very cautious about comfort in our life, and we should keep things in our life that make us uncomfortable. Now, I'm, I'm not encouraging masochism here. I'm not saying we should pursue pain or anything like that. No, I'm, I'm saying two things here. One is this. We should be very cautious in pursuing comfort because once we get it, we're not necessarily be- better off, spiritually at least. And that's especially important for us in this country to hear because, uh, you know, 
we just, we have to realize we have a lot of comfort. Like everything in our culture is designed and wired to be ridiculously comfortable or as comfortable as we can get it. If you doubt that, I have a challenge for you. Take the next week and just use dial-up internet. Like, remember that? 25 years ago, that's all we had. But now, I, you will be so front. Like, if my phone lags for like three seconds, I'm like, what is wrong with this stupid thing? Close it, start over. Um, You'll be so frustrated by the end of the week that you'll get it. It's, we are wired for comfort. Everything in our culture, because we're so affluent in the U.S., is leveraged for comfort and ease. And it is tied to affluence, which, by the way, you might know these statistics, but of the world's wealth, the United States controls about 30% of the world's wealth. So we control 30%. The rest of the world combined has 70%. The next closest country, percentage-wise, is China, who has 17%. So there's a huge inequity in just the amount of wealth within our borders. So what do you do when you have way more affluence than anyone else on the planet? You make everything as easy and convenient as you possibly could. And we are living in what may be the most comfortable and convenient nation that has ever existed on the planet. And please don't hear me say, I think that's a bad thing. I am not criticizing this. I live here too. I like it very much, like very much, right? but we have a lot of comfort. And we read these old texts and we have to be reminded of the truth that with all of that comfort, there are some spiritual implications for us that we maybe should guard against. With that comfort, it is just easy for humans who are comfortable to become complacent and secure, to slow down when God says, hey, I want you to change. It's like, well, let's think about it. Let's do a focus group. Let's talk about it. Comfort makes us assume things are good as they are, but this is what we, this is the God we're worshiping, a God who says, I will not rest until my kingdom in all of its fullness is on earth as it is in heaven. And so you think that message requires some change, even for us comfortable, affluent people? Absolutely. But the comfort can be toxic to our health, so we just have to be really cautious about it. It can make us be slow to do the things that God asks us to do. I'm also saying this, though. We should build into our life, like this is how we get ahead of it. We build into our life a little bit of uh, discomfort and allow into our life some things that make us uncomfortable. What I mean by that is, like, listen, fighting for the beautiful dream of God is always hard, right? And like, it's not easy. There's a lot, like, the deck feels stacked against you, and we have God on our side, which is all you need, but also it's hard. Fighting for justice and equality and dignity for every human, fighting for love and for somebody else's flourishing who is struggling is not easy. So participating in the kingdom of God, it invites discomfort in our life, and that's why what Kyle said is absolutely true. We cannot grow without it, we need that in our life. Human nature is, if we are not personally oppressed, we are very slow to fight against oppression. Like if someone is oppressing me or my family, well, you better believe it, I will stand up and fight. But if it's someone I don't know who's being oppressed, oh, that's so sad. We struggle to grieve and be moved over what Amos calls the ruin of Joseph. And that's what he's saying. is like there are these people in the nation and they are struggling 
And you guys, you're so comfortable that you're slow to move on that. That's the invitation, though, is to keep that grief in your life, this grief for what someone else is having to carry. Now, the good news about that as an application is there are so many ways to do this. Like, there's a lot of injustice in our world. There's a lot of things that we can put in our life that are going to challenge and stretch us and make us a little uncomfortable. Last week, we talked a, a bit about racial injustice, and that is certainly one of them. There's lots of other injustice. There's uh, economic injustice, uh, injustice towards the poor in every society, including ours. There's gender injust injustice, the oppression of women. There's sexual injustice towards people created in the image of God. So I want you to just think about those four areas of injustice. Uh, and there are ways that we can step in and grieve for the ruin of Joseph. One way we're doing that as a church is in this area of human trafficking. Um, We've been partnering for a few years with the Exodus Road. We're going to support them with this year's Christmas offering again, um, helping this organization rescue people from modern slavery. Um, and personally, as I've participated in this work, and I get to participate like a, a little bit on the front lines, uh, there has been nothing else in my life in the last few years that God has used more to teach me the power of grief and discomfort in walking with our Jesus. So when I'm able, and I hope to here in a, a couple months, but I, I, when I'm able, I travel with them uh, and collect evidence of brothels of trafficked people so that local teams of law enforcement can step in and do something to uh, help. Um, so this is a weird sentence, but uh, so I've met a lot of prostitutes and people who are suffering intense injustice in their life. Uh, and you think about those four injustices that I just mentioned. This is the picture of human trafficking. In most places in the world, sex workers are going to be from one ethnic group within a country. Uh, there, there are ethnic distinctions within borders that we don't see from the outside looking in. We're like, oh, you're all one country. But on the inside, there's, they see ethnic distinctions. And uh, in almost every situation, you have one ethnic group taking advantage of another ethnic group. Uh, not only that... The, the people taken advantage of are almost always poor. I would say they always are poor. There might be a few exceptions, but that is the story. This is an economic problem. It's an economic sin. And this particular issue is driven by middle class and upper class, primarily men. Uh, also, the majority of women or victims are women. Um, there are a lot of boys who are also trafficked, and there's actually a surprising amount of trans people who are tra taken advantage of in certain places of the world. So, like, it, it is a confluence of racial, economic, gender, and sexual injustice. That's what human trafficking is. And so the, one of the reasons we sponsor that and participate in it is because we look at that and we look at a God who cares about all of those things and we see how, uh, you know, for us to worship him doesn't mean to show up and sing, but it means to align with his heart. And so we're trying to do that in this area where these injustices are so pronounced. So when we first started exploring this partnership, um, I got an opportunity to go personally and just uh, see some of what what they do firsthand in some really awful places. And some of you who uh, know me well uh, will attest to this. When I came back, um, like honestly, it, like it probably took a, a few months to stop the tears. Like I just was wrecked. And, and I would come back and I would sit, sit there with my family during church, um, you know, and we're singing and worshiping. And I, like there was months, it was months before I could sing. I just, I would spend the whole service just sitting there trying not to cry. If I was rude to you during one of those Sundays, I apologize. That's what I was doing. I was just trying to keep it together. Um, and here's the thing, nothing happened to me. 
I didn't experience anything personally uh, that, that, that was traumatic. I was just, I was full of grief because of what I saw happening to strangers, people I don't even know. It might have been, you know, secondary trauma or what, I don't know what the technical term is, but I, I just was a mess. I was just uncomfortable. I still feel that. What nobody tells you when we talk about aligning with God's heart for the world is that as we do, we will feel his grief over the ruin of this world. That's what it means to align with his heart. And we're always like, hey, join God's work in the world. It's going to be great. But God works in some really hard places. God sees all the injustice, cares about it all. And so it is going to be great, but it is going to also be uncomfortable. So when I got a second opportunity to participate in some of this work, um, you know, there was a big part of me that was like, I don't, I, I don't ever want to. I just got over the last time. I don't ever want to. Uh, but another part of me that I, I think, I think was the Holy Spirit. Um, that, like I just had this sense, I can't look away. God is somehow in those brothels. Um, God, he somehow is seeing that injustice. And if he's there, I, if he's given me anything to contribute to the pit of injustice that is human slavery in the modern world, I have to contribute in some way if, if I have anything to give to that because he's there. I want to see him. And what, what he's taught me over these last few years um, is this, and I, I probably should have learned this as a younger man, but it came to me later in life. As nice as it is to be comfortable, it is deeply unsatisfying. Like in your soul, it's deeply unsatisfying. I have never met God just in my comfortableness. And while grief for others, grief for people you've never met is really uncomfortable. Like, I don't like grief. I hate it. I've sat there for months just trying to avoid it. <laughs> he is present in that grief in a way that he is never present in our comfortableness. Now, mercifully, over these last few years, God's teaching me a lot about how to carry that grief in healthy ways. Therapy, all that sort of stuff is really good. It is not, when I go on those trips, just awful and traumatic all the time, but it is uncomfortable all the time. It's uncomfortable for me. It's uncomfortable for my family, for my wife. It's just uncomfortable. But I'm learning this. There's an aspect of aligning with God's work in the world where you have to choose grief. And I think this is what Amos is really setting out before these men. Um, he, he is saying, hey, there is God's kingdom and there is being comfortable. You, you just got to pick. Which is it? I know human trafficking is a little intense. I'm not suggesting, that is not for everyone, and I'm not suggesting it is. I personally gravitate towards intense things. That's not virtuous. It is probably some deep-seated dysfunction in me, so please don't be like that. Um, I am not suggesting that we go find something intense to do or risky to do. That's not what Amos is teaching us. What he is teaching us is that all of us should find something uncomfortable to do, Right? That when we join God's work in the world in a way that stretches us, that, that we do something that causes us to carry grief for someone besides ourselves. 
Like, like the grief for the ruin of the world. That is the holy grief. It's not the grief for what we've experienced or the ones that we love have experienced. We all carry that, right? Like the world, it causes you to grieve. And so we all are full of that grief that we personally are carrying. But he is talking about grief for the injustice that somebody else has to carry. He says, as God's people, that needs to be a part of your life. That discomfort. We don't love that. That's okay. Um, but that's why we need the prophets, because we're like, hey, this comfortable thing, that, that sounds pretty good. And Amos comes along and says, guys, that's really dangerous. And warns us about the danger, dangerous power of comfort and numbing ourselves to the grief of this world. That is one of the things that makes us deeply spiritually unhealthy. And so the question for us is how are we stretching ourselves? How are we stretching ourselves outside of our comfort? Let us not settle for human comfort over the dream of our God. Let me close with this. Uh, one more fascinating observation from the book, The Triumph of Christianity by Rodney Stark. Everyone should own it and read it. It's amazing. Just kidding. Um, I, it's not like I get a kickback. I just like the book. Uh, but he does this, uh, in part of it, he does a statistical analysis within Christianity. So like looking at denominations and groups within Christianity. And it is so fascinating on many levels. But one conclusion the data seems to firmly indicate is that within Christianity, the faith grows most rapidly among versions of Christianity that ask a lot of people. Isn't that interesting? I might think the opposite is true, but, but this is what the statistics bear out, that when Christian groups attempt to lower the bar of what is expected, they usually start to decline, which is not what I would intuitively guess. But it does line up with the rest of the data. Like we humans, we obviously want a faith that means something. We obviously want a faith that affects our lives. If faith is just like this intellectual idea that doesn't affect our lives, that's real easy to walk away from, isn't it? If faith doesn't mean something in the real world, then it's not really worth our time. That is why the minor prophets are such a gift to us. I didn't think this a few month ago, months ago, but as I started studying, I realized this is such a gift to us. God has not called us, God has not called you to something easy. He is not. Like, Amos is not asking for something easy from us. God is calling us to know him, to swap our agenda for his, like forever, to join his fight for the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven, this fight that's rooted in the sacrifice of Jesus for the entire world, but connected to this grand dream of God to make everything we've broken new. And to make sure every person has a seat at the table. So I think what Amos is saying to these guys is something that we probably should have concluded when we were much younger people. But it's important to say it here. Being comfortable is not so great that it's worth wasting your life. It's just not. Probably most of us wouldn't identify as I'm just so comfortable all the time. But like to pursue that, like you could get it. It's not worth wasting our lives. Amos is saying there's nothing that you really want on the path of least resistance. So don't numb yourself to the grief over the ruin of Joseph. God's dream is so much better, and I know how uncomfortable grief is. I, 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 just as a person, I hate it. I try to avoid it every chance I get. There is grief on that path of following God, but there's also life on the path. And honestly, if you haven't gathered this already, grief is unavoidable. 
like it's unavoidable. So we can learn to carry it together or we can just try to avoid something that is unavoidable. But the question God is asking us is, is there space in your life for a little bit of grief and a little bit of discomfort for somebody else that you may not even know? Or is our bed adorned with ivory, a little too soft for us to get up? Now, that was the first ending of the sermon. Here's the second, um, because I feel like I do need to say this. Uh, it might feel a little um, unfair to say to a group of people like today, hey, embrace discomfort after the last 20 months that we've all stumbled through together, right? Uh, I don't know that any of us came in today saying, I just, everything is just great. I'm just so comfortable, right? Like it's been an uncomfortable season with COVID and with all of that stuff. And so I, I didn't want to end without just saying this. As someone who's been a part of this community for years, um, I, here's what I see in you people, and this is one of the reasons that I love you so much and just consider it such a privilege to be here. I see you stretching yourselves outside of the area of your comfort again and again and again. I had the privilege Tuesday of going to the Because uh, I Love You leadership gathering connected to CityServe and all that sort of stuff. So uh, it is a gathering of civic leaders and pastors in town, which is not nearly as fun as it sounds. Um, but uh, so you walk around with a name tag and people are like, oh, hey, hey, Jonathan or brother or whatever. You know, it's just a lot of pastors doing their greetings that are lame. Um, and they're like, what church are you at? I'm like, oh, Pulpit Rock. And I got this a lot. People are like, oh, yeah heard about Pulpit Rock. You know what they didn't say next? I heard the Bible teaching there is so great. That's not what they said. I'm sure they were thinking it. Right? They were probably thinking it, but uh, they didn't say that. They just thought it. Um, but what they did say is they mentioned something that you people were doing in the city or internationally. And there was something about it, like not in a self-focused way. I just, I was so deeply proud that in, like, a lot of the conversation was just about how tired everybody in our churches are, how worn out and uncomfortable everybody is just who's going to churches. Uh, and, and that's true. Like, across the city, just I would guess probably across the country, we're just all a little bit tired and worn out. Um, but what I see you people doing is despite that discomfort, you step in again and again and again. And I see that this is a community that is not afraid of carrying grief for somebody other than yourself. Right? And you do that for refugees, you do that for human slaves, for foster kids, the list goes on and on and on. I see you stepping in again and again and saying, we'll live with that discomfort and we'll grieve if it's a godly grief. We didn't stop in this year of intense discomfort. Can I just say, may we never stop. May we never choose the path of least resistance because God is not on that path. So, Heavenly Father, we come to you with our uncomfortable hearts. We come to you with our grief that uh, you've brought these stories into our life about people we may not even know. And we've allowed ourselves to feel a little bit of it. God, I'm so thankful for that. Um, would you continue to redeem? Would you find us faithful co-laborers with you in your work on earth? Would you teach us to carry the grief well? And would you keep us, uh, keep us being people who aren't afraid to lean in, even when it hurts, even when it causes tears? God, I just, I'm so thankful for this church. I've learned so much from them.
Um, we're open, God. We're deeply open to what you want for us. Amen. Amen.